All right, folks, would you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. If you get to Mark, Luke, John, go back to the left. It's in the, Matthew's in the New Testament, to the right in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible if you need one. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 13 through 28 is where we've been looking. We, we looked at the first portion of this text last week, 13 through 20, and today we'll be focusing on verses 21 through 28. Again, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Matt's not just looking for a seat. All right. Um, we, we jumped into Matthew 16 because we wanted to simply ask the question, what does it look like to be a church? What does it look like to be a people who have been saved and sent by Jesus? Because if you've been with us for uh, a little while, then you know that uh, Park is one church in nine different locations, a church that was planted out of the Moody Church about 30 years ago. And at the end of the summer on September 1st, Park Logan Square will become an independent uh, church, a new church, church in the square. Um, and so we've just begun to ask the Lord, what does it look like for us to be the church that you're calling us to be on the near west side of the city as we begin this new journey, start this new uh, season of ministry? And Matthew 16 is what uh, came to mind to help us think through what is it that we're stepping into. And if you remember last week, we took some time from Matthew 16, again, 13 through 20, and saw that the Peter proclaims Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and on this rock, on my identity, Jesus says, I will build my church. And now from here, where Jesus begins to move, is away from the foundation, but as a result of the foundation, here's the pathway of the church. Here's what it looks like to walk as the people of God. We looked, based on that foundation, at three different core values that we have as Church in the Square that will launch September 1st, that we want to preach the Word, we want to apply the Word, and we want to live the Word, that those three values will be guiding and helpful for us in understanding how is Jesus building Jesus' church right here in Logan Square uh, and beyond. Today, we want to ask the question, what will this cost us? What will this cost us? So we like talking about Jesus building the church, but we don't really like talking about what will Jesus building this church cost the people of God. And with the Lord's help, I desire to do that from His Word, Matthew 16, verse 21 through 28. And we all need the Lord's help in this, so let's pray and ask for His help. Father, we thank You so very much for Your Word. Thanks that we can come to it as Your people. Thank You that we don't have to ask one another, what do you think God is like? That each generation doesn't have to look at themselves and say, what do we think about who God is? But your word, living, active, eternal, beautiful, true, teaches us about who you are. And thank you that your character is not failing. Thank you that you are faithful in your characteristics, in your qualities. And so I pray, Father, that we would get a right and accurate picture of who you are today. First and foremost, that's why we're coming to your word. We're coming to your word because we need to meet with the God of the universe. We don't need pithy statements. We don't need memorable taglines. What we need is an encounter with a holy and just and righteous God. And you promise to do that through your word. And so we're coming to your word. And, and, I, and I'm coming, Father, not as one who is uh, above this word or next to this word, but like my brothers and sisters, like my friends and neighbors here, we are all underneath this word. 
And so help us to surrender and submit to it. Help us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord that you would lift us up. And help us in particular, Father, when it gets really uncomfortable, when we don't like what your word has to say, when we don't like realizing that this calls from us not just a day or a moment or a minor sacrifice, it calls for our whole lives. And so God, prepare us, protect us from being defensive in those moments. Protect me, Father, from being defensive in those moments. We say, have your way in us. Change us from the inside out. We pray, Father, that we would confess sin we don't even know about today, that you would reveal that stuff in our hearts as your word is proclaimed, and that you would heal us of those things. Thank you that there is no hiding from you. We think the darkness will hide us, but it never does. We think running from you will protect us, but it never does. So God, may we step and walk in the light as you are in the light, that we might have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Do a work in us, God that you might do a work through us. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, Peter, who takes sort of center stage, if you will, as one of the disciples here, is instructive for us in the way that he responds to Jesus. If you remember, Jesus leads his disciples out of sort of an Israelite and Jewish context into a pagan context in Caesarea Philippi in chapter 16, verse 13. And then he asks them sort of a PR question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist. They give him all of this reporting of what people are saying about him in a pagan missional sort of context, uncomfortable context for them. And then he turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, if you remember his character, his qualities, always willing to say something when the group is referred to, always willing to step out and be the first one to speak. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, and on this rock, on this, my identity, I'll build my church. And he sort of works them into a frenzy and then says that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, that my church will grow, that my church will prevail, that my church will move forward. And then he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he says this in verse 20. Matthew 16, verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Things that make you say, hmm, right? Most of us, have, if we've grown up in the church, most of us would say, people keep telling me I got to tell everybody about Jesus. So I'm glad I finally found a verse that fits my personality. I don't need to tell anybody about him. I've got Matthew 16, verse 20. You memorized that before I was done reading it. You're like, this feels really nice. Well, what is Jesus talking about? First, don't take a verse out of its context. Don't do that. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? We don't want to do that. We want to be very careful to understand what Jesus is doing within this particular context. But it is interesting. It is interesting after the very first time that Jesus' identity in Matthew is so clearly articulated by one of his disciples where Jesus speaks about the church for the very first time in Matthew where he's going to build his kingdom or his church rather on this rock of his identity and then he says, shh, don't tell nobody. Keep this to yourself. Isn't it true a lot of times we can sort of follow God with what he is saying and then he misses, he loses us somewhere. We go, I was tracking with you up until the application point. Up until some point, I have a hard time going all the way. For many of us, we may sense that, that this is not just a story here. This is sort of our story, where I'm like, great, this is who Jesus is. Let's go tell everybody. And he says, wait just a minute. And here's why I think that Jesus says to wait just a minute. Look at verse 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We get this fabulous juxtaposition in these two passages in verses 13 through 20, and now here in verses 21, and there's a dramatic shift taking place in Matthew's gospel. Right here between verses 20 and 21, a shift is taking place away from the development of Jesus' public ministry, now to the climax of his ministry, going to the cross. And so Matthew is, is actually marks this out for us in even the language that he uses, not only in chapter 4, where the first transition takes place, but the same language now in verse 21, from that time. Matthew uses from that time as a way to say there's a transition happening in the story. And so that should call our attention as savvy readers that the, that the story is changing here. There's a movement, there's a shift, there's a transition happening. And we see this very clearly, I think, in the juxtaposition of the way in which Jesus is revealing who he is and what he does. In this first passage, we see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We get this picture of King Jesus. We vote yes to King Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of the kingdom of God, that he was coming for his people. But now he begins to communicate to his disciples that he is not just king, but he is also a suffering servant. He says he is coming and that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer at the hands of the religious elites of the day, that he must be killed, that he must be raised from the dead. Let's bring this down into our world. Isn't it true that many of us love the victorious and King Jesus who rules and reigns over everything, but the suffering servant makes us real nervous? Real nervous. I'd like to submit to you that you do not have an appropriate Christology or understanding of Jesus if you believe that Jesus is only king or only suffering servant. Here in Matthew chapter 16, we get the picture that he is both. He is both the long-awaited hope of Israel, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God, and he is also the one who came to die. To have an appropriate view of Jesus Christ, you must have a full view of him as King, Messiah, Lord, and God, and the one who came to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised from the dead. See, Peter has a real hard time with this, and I think that we do too, because Jesus is not merely communicating just dis distinctions in his nature. Look at the precise way that he is speaking about what he will do. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. Now, what we're to understand, I think, about the way that Matthew writes this is Jesus didn't just say this one time. It's this language of, of communicating that Jesus continued to show over and over and over again. Just a minor little excursus. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who repeats himself? He doesn't just say it one time. He continually shows and reveals and reminds you. As a parent, I want to give you one shot Boy, daughter of mine, like girl and boy of mine, I just want to give you one shot. And if you don't get it, I told you, you need to obey mom and dad. Thanks be to God that he is a much more patient, loving, tender, and gracious parent than we are. That when we forget, that when we fall short, that when we need a refresher, he is gracious to repeat himself. And this is what Jesus does over and over again. He says, I must go to Jerusalem, the epicenter of governmental social and religious life for the people of God. I must go to suffer. I must be killed and I must be raised from the dead. 
Jesus really communicates what's the core composition of the gospel. If we summarize the gospel or the good news, it's probably best to understand is that Jesus is Lord, not a suggestion, not a religious mandate, but an announcement of reality. It's an announcement of the reality of who Jesus is. And we get that in 13 through 20, that Jesus is Lord and that nothing will prevail against him. But now we get the composition of what Jesus has or will accomplish, that he lived perfectly, that he died sacrificially, that he was buried literally, that he rose victoriously, that he ascended authoritatively. This is the core composition of the gospel of the good news, that Jesus is Lord and that this is what he has done. Therefore, as a church who follows Jesus, who is built upon Jesus, we get our foundation and our pathway of living from the gospel itself. Friends, the gospel is not just a value for us. It is the lens by which we see all things that are valuable. The gospel is not one thing in the host of a lot of things. It is the way in which we are called to see the world through the lordship of Jesus and his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. See, here we have the foundation of Jesus and the pathway of Jesus. This is what it is to be the people of God. Grounded in his identity and lordship, and following in the way of his life, following in the way of his death, following in the way of his resurrection by the power of the ascension and the gift of the Spirit of God that he gives us. See, this is so important for us because Jesus gives us the grounding of the church, and now he gives us the pathway of the church. And in Peter's response, I think we find our own. Look at Peter, verse 22. And Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Okay, make sure that you pick up what Matthew's throwing down here because this is crazy. Just one scene earlier, Peter, revealed by the Father, articulates the identity of Jesus Christ. That this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just one scene later is rebuking the Christ the son of the living God, and saying, you're doing it wrong. Peter gives me such great hope because isn't it true? On Sundays, we're varsity level, double hands raised to Jesus. And on Monday, we go, God, you're doing it wrong. This is how you're supposed to love me. This is how you're supposed to provide for me. This is how you're supposed to take care of me. Am I preaching to you yet or is this just me? This is my life. Peter gives me such great hope. Such great hope because the Lord keeps him around, right? Peter's like, you're the Christ. Don't do that. I'll tell you how to be Lord. Here's the irony here, is that Peter has just called him Lord. Now Peter is acting like Lord. Peter has just called Jesus Lord, and now he is acting like Lord. Oh, is this not our hearts? See, this is not a story about Peter. This is a story about humanity. This is a story about me. This is a story about you. That one minute we call him Lord and the next we're acting like we are. Oh, Lord, give us help. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. What particularly is Peter saying, though? See, Peter had expectations for the Lord long before the Lord showed up. Peter had expectations that solidified about what it was for the Messiah to come for the people of God. Now, a good Jew would have had a number of expectations. 
would have believed that the Messiah was coming to rule and reign on earth as king. This is why two of the disciples, James and John, sent their mother to Jesus one day and said, will you let my boys, because they're perfect and special, they're not yet millennials, but they kind of act like it, right? Let them sit at your left and your right because they're really special and won all kinds of participation ribbons in all of the Jewish schools that they went to, right? Let them sit at their, your left and right, because she believed, like a lot of Jews, that the Messiah would rule and reign on earth. So the expectation for Peter would have been the same. The expectation for the Messiah was that the Messiah would come and rebuild the temple. The expectation for the Messiah was that they would come and he would come and stick it to all the oppressors of God's people. In other words, the expectation was that the Messiah would come to end suffering, not to suffer. The Messiah would come to end suffering for the people of God, not suffer. And Jesus has just said, I'm going to suffer and be killed. Please hear this. Jesus did not fit within the expectations that the people of God had for him. Jesus did not fit within the expectations. Jesus is really good at shattering our expectations that we have for him. See, much of my life could be categorized as one who believes that he found a box to put God in and then God bust in that box wide open. Oh, you think that's who I am. You think that's how you can frame me out. He constantly, consistently, and lovingly says, I'm better than that. I'm bigger than that. I'm more miraculous and majestic than that. You can't tie me up or hold me down. I will shatter your expectations. This is what Peter is dealing with. But now let's get at the heart. Let's get at the real heart of this, because Peter had some failings of understanding who the Messiah was, but there was one thing in particular that Peter did not like, and it was that Jesus said he was going to die. And Jesus helps to articulate this in the way that he responds to Peter. And talk about shattering your expectations. Isn't it true that God is loving and kind, slow to anger and abounding in, you know, love for his people and abounding in generosity? You would expect Jesus to just go, hey, Peter, let me repeat myself again. I just want to let you know, like, this is why I've got to go die. And no, this is what he says. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. We really like that Jesus says, let the little children come, right? He also says, get behind me, Satan. He says that to him, why? Because you're a hindrance to me. Jesus had just had an interaction with Satan in chapter 4 in Matthew in the wilderness. And at the end of that interaction with Satan, do you know what he said? Away from me, Satan. In other words, get away from me, or you are, a hit, you are rather, uh, what does he say here? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never pass. Get behind me, Satan. It's the exact same language. The exact same language that Jesus uses for Satan, he now uses for Peter. Why? Because he has become a hindrance to him. A stumbling block, some of your translations may say. Here's the irony in this. Peter's name, which means rock. And Jesus just said, I'll build my church on this rock. Now the rock is a stumbling block to Jesus. How quickly we neglect, how quickly we forget. See, this is really instructive for us at a heart level in the way that Jesus is speaking to Peter. And here's the lie that Peter believes, that Satan believes that Jesus is making the connection in the way that he is addressing him. Satan always wants human beings to believe that death is not inevitable, that death is optional, that death is avoidable. Let's take it back to the garden. 
in the garden when Adam and Eve are standing after they've just been given this righteous regulation from God. You may eat of any tree of the garden except one, or on that day you'll surely die. The serpent, the evil one, comes and slithers along and says what? You will not surely die. You don't have to die, right? Jesus, years later, right? Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes along and one of the first, the first temptation after Jesus is fasting for 40 days, just make some bread and water. You'll be fine. You don't have to hurt. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. Eat this food. Jump off of this building. Angels will come and protect you from what? Dying. The evil one wants us to believe that death is avoidable. Death is not necessary. Therefore, when Peter looks the Lord in his face and says, you don't have to die, far be it from you, Lord. He goes, that's satanic and demonic. Get behind me. This is not just like Peter needs to mature a little bit more, just needs to grow up a little bit more. His theology is just a little bit off. His theology is demonic. His understanding of the gospel is satanic, and Jesus articulates that without equivocation, with incredible clarity. Finally, he says to Peter, in the way of summarizing this, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ultimately, Peter's issue is all of our issue, that the trappings of this world have so leaked and infiltrated into our hearts and into our mindset that we begin to believe that it is wise, that it is good, that it is right, and we don't even recognize Jesus, the King, doing the work that he has come to do. So what is the things of God? I think it's important for us to understand the things of God if we're to understand what it is to live a life that the Lord is calling us to live. If we're to live the life that the Lord is calling us to live, the things of God, if nothing else, theologically, biblically, in a big picture, is the glory of God. That whatever is about the glory of God is, are the things of God. That if it speaks of the worth and the beauty and the majesty and truth of our God, those are the things of God. So to sing from a biblical worldview, to serve from a biblical worldview, to love your neighbor as yourself, all of those things are to bring glory to God. Those are the things of God. To worship God in spirit and in truth, those are the things of God because they bring him glory. Whatever is about the glory of God, that is the things of God. Not only that, but as Jesus has articulated, the gospel is central to the things of God. The gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus lived perfectly, died sacrificially, was buried literally, was raised victoriously and ascended authoritatively, that is about the things of God. That brings him glory. That is central to who we are. But thirdly, and perhaps easily missed, I think, in this first century context, the way Jesus is using this language of being about or committed to the things of God, Jesus is asking for kingly allegiance, royal allegiance to his kingdom. In other words, Peter telling Jesus that he should not go and die was not just a mistake, it was treason. It wasn't just off and wrong. It was treasonous because the things of God, being committed to the things of God means that you are surrendered to his will, his way, his purposes, his promises, his character. You are alleged to King Jesus and it is a full allegiance. See, many of us believe we can continue to live our lives and just add Jesus to it. That's treason because you're taking your kingdom, your worldview, and attempting to match it with Jesus. No kingdom matches with Jesus. His kingdom crushes every other kingdom. 
This is why we must be about the things of God and not the things of man. It comes down to our James study and the understanding of what wisdom is. See, a lot of the things of man feel wise to us, feel helpful to us, feel good to us, and yet they are in complete violation of what is the will and way and pathway of the king. And that's what Jesus begins to help us see in verse 24. After he has chided Peter, he then turns to all of his disciples and begins to instruct them. Then Jesus told them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I think what Jesus is now helping us to see is what does it look like to be about the things of God. What it looks like to be about the things of God is threefold, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to follow him. What we can understand in sort of reverse order is that we cannot follow Jesus unless we have picked up our cross, and we cannot pick up our cross unless we have denied ourselves. And I'd like to suggest to you that's where our issue is. Our issue is in the denial of self. And the distinction, the difference, why it's treasonous to be about the things of man and not the things of God is because one is the denial of self to be about the things of God. The other is the preservation of self to be about the things of man. You see, Peter knew this sort of a first century understanding that the way of the master is the way of the follower. See, many of us in the 21st century, especially a Western context, believe that our job is to be better than our master, to supersede our master, to go further, better, to know more, to grow past our master. But in the Jewish context and understanding, the pathway of the master was the pathway of the follower. And so the reason that Peter did not want Jesus to go to Jerusalem and be killed and to die is why? Because he knew that the way of the master is the way of the follower. Peter knew that if I follow Jesus all the way to Jerusalem, it's going to cost me my life too. So he went in preservation mode. He didn't deny himself. He was attempting to preserve himself. That's what you and I do all the time. And I think we do this personally and we also do it corporately. And I want to get this right, so I want to walk through a few things to help us understand how it is that we refuse to deny ourselves and how we instead preserve ourselves, not only as individuals, not only as followers of Jesus, but also as a church. And I want to make it as plain as possible about what it will look like for us as a church moving forward in this new season. First, let's consider what the things of man we do personally, how we are committed to self-preservation and we reject self-denial. The first thing we do instead of denying ourselves is that we promote ourselves. Think about your work. Many of us believe if I don't promote myself, if I don't speak well of myself, who will? Who will? Who will make sure that people know I was a part of that work? I did that job. Make sure my name gets in the byline. Make sure that I get credit for what I have done. We want to make sure that we are promoted because we believe that's how my life will be preserved. That's how my hope will be preserved. Now, we do it another way as well, not only through self-promotion, but we reject self-denial by providing for ourselves, being committed to providing for self. Think about your finances. Think about your possessions. We work so hard to make sure that all of our needs are met, that whatever need we have, we go after that thing to help ourselves. That's why we have such a hard time giving our money away because we were the ones who earned it. 
We were the ones who worked hard. Never mind that somebody gave the boss your name, that somebody made you born at one point, that somebody orchestrated every little day of your life to make sure you got to the place where you could receive that job and promotion, had the skills and ability, but yeah, you did all that yourself. See, we want to make sure that we provide for ourselves so we don't deny ourselves. We provide and promote ourselves. Thirdly, what we do personally, instead of denying ourselves, we protect ourselves. Think about the last time somebody accused you of something, thought poorly of you. If you're anything like me, you race to defend yourself and say, it's not like that. Let me tell you my version of the story. Let me tell you how things really are. Instead of being open to the possibility of an imperfection, we rush to self-protection and not self-denial. See, we're not a people who deny ourselves. We're a people who promote, provide, and protect ourselves. And I'm fearful that what we do individually, we will do collectively as a church, particularly in this new season. And so let me give us a few things that we need to think about, a few ways I think that we will corporately reject self-denial and continue to seek self-preservation. First, I think we'll be too committed to sameness, that when we don't want to deny ourselves, we want to make sure that everybody around us looks like we look, that we believe that churches that grow fastest and best are those that grow like each other. In fact, if you want to be promoted to the conference-level pastoral speaking circuit, then you must have a church that grows fast and grows quick and grows big. And the only way that we believe we can do that is if everybody's the same. And everybody's souls, we use this even like bad theology and rejecting places like, I don't know, all of Revelation and everything Paul had to say to the Ephesian church and the story of the early church, the first place being called Christians was in a multi-ethnic context. So instead of being diverse, we want to be same because it achieves and protects our name, our fame, our reputation. Secondly, what we may be tempted to do corporately in this next season in rejecting self-denial instead pursuing self-preservation, is we'll be really committed to solving the problems of our neighborhood. Now, I want to be careful because that may strike you as a little bit odd. What, what I mean by that is I've lived in this neighborhood for four years. This church has existed for two years. And I could already sense in my own heart and in many of our other hearts, we go, now we've figured out the neighborhood. Here's what the neighborhood needs. Here's how we fix this neighborhood. Right? The sort of arrogance that comes from living somewhere two or three or four years that now we know how to fix stuff. So you're welcome, Jesus. You're welcome, Logan Square. You're welcome, Westside. All of your problems are going away because now we're here. Friends, there have been people who have lived in Logan Square and in the near West Side for generations. Can I suggest to you, we have decades of listening before we have decades of problem solving before us. But if we're all about self-preservation, we need to make ourselves useful and accomplish. We have to tell people what we're doing and listening and being present. Like those aren't really cool and fun things to report, right? It's accomplishing things that we're so drunk on in our particular culture, achieving things. And yet sometimes the Lord calls us to seasons of listening so that we can actually be of use for the kingdom down the road. Thirdly, rejecting self-denial and seeking self-preservation will be committed to our own wisdom. Our own wisdom of the way that we see things, our own wisdom of who we are, that we have insight and information to offer. And what we do really at the base level of this is that when problems show up or opportunities show up, we don't ask, what does the Word of God have to say about this? We say, what do I think about this? 
And within our own collective wisdom, we begin to try to answer the spiritual realities, the spiritual difficulties, the spiritual tensions, and they're not there. Answers for this world's problems are not in your heart and mind unless the Spirit of God is alive and well and He's communicating the Word of God to you. So we need to be very careful to preserve ourselves by our own wisdom and to not be anchored by denying ourselves and being in the Word of God. Fourthly, and perhaps most difficultly, I think one of the things collectively that we'll struggle with is that we'll be so committed to our own personal schedules. The Lord's been doing a work in my heart on this because I'd love to love you as long as we schedule it a week in advance. As long as we've got it on the calendar, it's the right color, I put the right margins, the right time and space, the right location. See, many of us are ready to deny ourselves as long as it's put in the exact right way, in the exact right time, in the exact right place, and I have opened myself up to to deny myself at 3 p.m. on Thursday. That's when I want to do it. See, we are are a people, and I myself am numbered with them, that we see interruptions to our ministry, interruptions from our dreams, not as the way that God works, but the way that the evil one works, when I think a lot of times the Lord shows us, even in the way that he lived, that interruptions are our ministry, that people showing up when we weren't ready for them, that is a moment for the Lord to work. That is a moment for him to do his will in us, for you and I to deny ourselves. See, what does it mean to deny ourselves? It means to lay down your will and allow the will of another to guide you. It's to lay down your will and to allow the will of another to guide you. It's when that happens that then we will pick up our cross. If we don't deny ourselves, we will never pick up our cross. And what is it to pick up our cross? It's to identify with Jesus in suffering. I don't want to suffer. I need someone else's will to transform me from the inside out to become a person that goes, yes, I'll pick up my cross and suffer. Jason in his flesh does not want to suffer, and I imagine I'm not the only one. Therefore, if I don't want to deny myself and I cannot pick up my cross, it's no wonder that I cannot follow Jesus. See, religion just tells you from one day to the next, just follow Jesus. What the gospel reveals is a deeper heart-level issue of deadness in my heart that I cannot deny myself. I don't want to deny myself. Therefore, I don't pick up my cross and follow him. And it's because we've misunderstood the gospel. See, I think I even grew up. I grew up in the church, so forgive me for that. I grew up in the church, and what I often heard by my own listening, not because somebody was teaching inappropriately, But by my own listening, the gospel became an invitation to life, that you can live today, you can have life today. And that's really good, and I want to be very careful here. That's true. You can have life today in Jesus Christ, but the pathway of life, the pathway to life is death. See, the gospel, before it's an announcement that you can have life today, it's that you can die today. It's that you can die right now. See, we have misunderstood. Jesus did not go to the cross. Jesus did not suffer and die so that you don't have to suffer and die, so that I don't have to suffer and die. He went to the cross to suffer and die so that in our suffering and death, it would not be our end but a new beginning. He came to overwhelm and overcome suffering and death, not so that we could avoid it, but so that through it, he would show that he is champion, he is Lord, he is God, he is the Christ. See, Jesus did not come to take away suffering and death. He came so that suffering and death would no longer be the end, but the new beginning. So the invitation of the gospel is come and die today. 
The invitation of the gospel is come and deny yourself today. The invitation of the gospel is pick up your cross and follow him today. Some of us got a weak sauce gospel, and if that's what converted us, we probably are still yet unsaved. If we simply believe that today you can have life and you don't have to come and die, it's no wonder you have a hard time following Jesus and growing up in him because you've never been saved by him. It is when you are saved by Jesus that you count all things as rubbish, all things as lost, except for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus, him and him alone crucified. That's the gospel. The gospel makes up a bunch of people who like love dying for the sake of others. That's crazy. And here's what I mean. Look at what Jesus says back up in verse 21. He says something amazing that it's easy to overlook. Help us, Lord, to not miss this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. That he must go to Jerusalem. That he must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That he must be killed. That he must on the third day be raised. Isn't it interesting that even though Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead, all Peter heard was that he was going to die? You and me too, right? You and me too, when the Lord delivers a hard word, he says, you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but fear no evil. And we just go, oh my gosh, we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we forget that he said, we fear no evil, right? He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not, I've overcome the world. Oh, we're going to have trouble in this world. It's going to be so hard. He's like, he also said he overcame the world, right? This is so like us to only hear the bad part of the gospel, right? Only the bad part of what he is saying. So Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die and be resurrected from the dead. And Peter's like, don't die. Don't die. See, I think we inherently know that the way of the master is the way of the follower. We might have heard that we can be raised to new life, but we don't want to die. And this is the beauty of that word must. You see, a lot of Opponents of the gospel would say that must, or this, this obligation that Matthew communicates, is some sort of picture of cosmic divine child abuse, that against Jesus' will, he's being forced to the cross, that he is being forced to die for the sins of the world. But the best way to understand this language of must is about possibility or opportunity, meaning that Jesus must go to Jerusalem, that Jesus must suffer, that Jesus must be killed, and Jesus must be raised from the dead if we are to be saved. If we are to be saved, there is no other way because it is through death that Jesus destroys death. It is through death that Jesus destroys death. Therefore, because he did this, now you and I can do the miraculous thing of denying ourselves because it's on the cross. Oh, this is so good. Don't miss this. It's on the cross that Jesus lays open and lays bare and puts to shame the principalities and powers and dark temptations of this dark and evil age. Therefore, the proclivity and temptation you have to preserve yourself no longer has power over you in Christ. That longing to protect yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, provide for yourself, Jesus nailed that to the cross. That no longer has to guide you because Jesus, by God's Spirit, can guide you because he nailed it to the cross. Not only that, but because Jesus went to the cross, when you die to yourself, he can raise you up to new life. So there's always joy for the follower of Jesus to deny themselves for Jesus. Why? Because pretty soon, he's going to raise you to new life. 
because this is what he does. When we pick up our cross, when we deny ourselves and follow him, we receive eternal life. See, the result of all of this, the therefore in all of this, is that when we asserted ourselves and sought to preserve ourselves, God in Christ did not preserve himself, but he denied himself. He took up his cross and he followed the Father's will and purpose all the way to the cross so that you and I would righteously deny ourselves and that in our death to our old self, we'd be raised to new life. I cannot be more frank than to say to you, following Jesus will always cost you your old self. Following Jesus will always cost you your old self. Much of Christian weariness is spent on trying to resurrect the old life in sinfulness as opposed to letting the old life die to the glory of God in Christ. Following Jesus will always cost you your old self, but following Jesus, you are welcomed into a brand new identity of full and forever life in Him And we know this because Jesus is not done. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in glory and the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. See, because Jesus denied himself, because Jesus picked up his cross, because Jesus followed the will of the Father out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, we will not have to taste death. What that means is not you won't have to die. Death is the pathway through which God has redeemed in order to resurrect us to new life in Christ. The gospel is not you don't have to die. The gospel is, oh, death, where is your sting? The gospel is, oh, death, where is your sting? No longer does it last eternity, but life can last eternally. Here's the beauty of this, too. What it means for us as a church on mission is that like Jesus, when we deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him, it doesn't just welcome us into life, it welcomes others into life as well. See, the work of Jesus now becomes the pathway by which all of us are welcomed into life. And can you even imagine if we as a group of folks started to deny ourselves, started to pick up our cross and follow Jesus? Can you imagine the ripple effect that that would have in our community? Can you imagine the ripple effect that would have in Monroe? Can you imagine the ripple effect that would have in Logan Square, the near west side, the city of Chicago, and all over the world? You can't even believe to begin to imagine the impact that that would have. Why? Because everyone is trying to preserve themselves. That's a wide road. Right? Remember when you were a teenager, I'm going to rebel against mom and dad and do crazy stuff? The only rebellion left is to read your Bible, submit to Jesus, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. Nobody's doing that. And so when a community starts doing that, walking this narrow road of self-denial, they're like, who are these crazy rebels unto the kingdom of God? And they all get woken up to a fresh reality of God's grace, right? Do you wonder why the rebellion you did in high school, everybody is still doing and it didn't work out for them? Because the only rebellion that brings life is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. That's this kind of life that leads to more life for other people. Because when you start letting go of the things you think will preserve your life, it starts to bring life to others. 
When you and I start laying beside the things that our culture values, like our own time, our own name, our own schedule, our own power, when we begin to hold those things with an open hand and say, Lord, let your will be done, it starts to bring life to the least, the last, and the lost, and the most vulnerable. It starts bringing life to the church. It starts bringing life to cities and neighborhoods and to this world. And so may we be a church not merely built on the identity of Jesus, but a church that walks in the pathway of Jesus, that denies ourselves, picks up our cross, and follow him, that many, many more would follow him too. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. We spend much of our week, much of our days toiling, keeping ourselves alive, preserving our own life. But as your son has said clearly in this world, what good is a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? That we have this brilliant opportunity to live in a counterintuitive, countercultural kind of way of self-denial. And that's going to be hard, Lord, so we need your help. Along the way of this new church, Father, we're going to be tempted to preserve and protect and provide for ourselves. And so we ask for your help. Would you convict us? Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you humble us that we might deny our own will as the Lord Jesus showed us? Not, not, not our will be done, but yours, Father. We pray you'd empower us by your spirit. You'd equip us as your people that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that the name of Jesus would be ever on the lips of this church, of this neighborhood, this city, and this world. Would you do that, God, for your own glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?